You may be familiar with our body's natural circadian rhythms or the evolutionarily ingrained hormonal cycles that all organisms have that revolve most commonly around 24-hour light and dark cycles, responsible for when we are awake and when we sleep, when we eat and when we fast, and when we are active and when we rest. But what you may not know is there's far more to these cycles than just the rising and setting of the sun. And what you may be interested to find out is that what we eat, when we eat, and how much we eat could in fact directly influence these circadian clocks, otherwise known as chrononutrition. That's what we're discussing on this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show where each week you'll hear the real-world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master, their health, productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Much has been said about the importance of sleep, from adequate timing, duration, and quality with respect to our hunger, energy, cravings, blood sugar regulation, ability to effectively burn body fat, maintain lean muscle mass, and even think clearly and prevent the onset of disease. And as you're well aware, observing and aligning with our natural sleep-wake cycles is a non-negotiable factor if you care about really any aspect of your health, be it body composition and or performance. Over the past several years, more and more evidence has been identified to further support our understanding around the importance of respecting our ingrained circadian biology and the influence of healthy sleep patterns and unhealthy sleep patterns on daily nutrition and both short and long-term health outcomes. Similarly, there's mounting evidence to support various aspects of nutrition that revolve around most certainly the amount of food we eat in a given day, but more recently the concepts of when we eat our meals in a given day and or night, the consistency of our meals daily, how we spread out our meals throughout a given day, and if and when we could or should strategically avoid food altogether. The relationship between our diet and our circadian biology is known as chrononutrition. And today, I'm joined by leading expert Danny Lennon, the founder of Sigma Nutrition, to break it down for us. Sigma Nutrition is a company providing educational content on evidence-based nutrition and health. Of this content, Danny is perhaps most well-known for being the host of the top-ranked podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio. In this episode, we'll discuss a general overview of the origin of chrononutrition relative to circadian biology and tenets of intermittent fasting slash time-restricted feeding. We'll talk about the metabolic changes present when meal timing is adjusted away from biological night and the many nuances that exist when determining if, when, and how to determine what meal timing pattern is right for you. 
As always, guys, if you love what you hear on the show, then do me a huge favor and subscribe. Leave me a positive rating and review and share this episode with a friend or loved one whom you think could benefit. And if you want to talk about working with me personally, I'd love to chat with you. Just schedule your free nutrition strategy call over at bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. With that said, I hope you guys love the show. Here's Danny Lennon. Danny Lennon, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. What's up, man? I am good. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure. Dude, it's an absolute honor. I've been listening to your show for years now, and I'm just uh, super grateful for everything that, all that time and energy and effort that you've been putting into that consistently over the years, putting really just great information out into, uh, into the world for us nutrition practitioners, the lay population to absorb and utilize. And it's just nice to have um, that type of evidence-based information available to us. So thank you for everything that you've been doing. I'm I'm grateful to have you uh, doing it and on the show. Oh, I appreciate that so much. It's very kind of you to say. So uh, thank you so much. Yeah, dude. Um, So as we get started here, I'd love to just being a fellow podcaster, I'd like to know a little bit more about kind of how you got into the podcasting and maybe just a brief background into nutrition uh, specifically. Sure. So when I originally went to college, um, I started studying science education. And at that time, my big hobby outside of education was playing sports. I played a lot of field sports growing up. Um, And then when I got into college, started training in the gym and and started doing some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, some things like that. And I'd always had a focus on trying to get better at those um, sports. And so when I got to college and started doing a degree in science, I started learning about how to read science research and i'd never been exposed to that before and so almost as a side hobby out of interest to help me in my Mm -hmm. sporting performances i started looking for research papers related to sports performance um, and then from there fell into the area of nutrition and started seeing how that might impact my performance and how it could improve in the gym and then i just kind of got fascinated with nutrition overall and uh, kind of fast forward a few years of doing that really as a, my hobby, as, a, as I did my degree and ended up actually being a high school teacher for a year doing science. Uh, there was this thing about nutrition that kept pulling me back. And so I ended up leaving teaching and going back and doing a master's degree in nutritional science. And off the back of that, I started Sigma Nutrition with the idea of um, both doing our coaching consulting, um, but also putting out information in that area. And so the podcast really came about, this was the end of 2013, the start of 2014, when podcasts were certainly nowhere near as big as they are now and still yeah, relatively definitely. unknown. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were some about, and I enjoy listening to podcasts, even though they weren't that, that common. And as just a way of putting out information, there was no master plan behind it, really. I just thought, I'll write some articles, I'll do some YouTube videos, I'll do this podcasting thing, see how that goes. And then pretty soon after starting to do try and do each of those, I found that there was this overlap. Number one, my uh, preference and, and kind of skill set seemed to be best suited for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, and I seemed to be able to be more regular with that. And then second, there there also seemed to start to gain a bit of traction and people seem to really enjoy it early on. 
And so I decided to not do as much writing, not really do any YouTube stuff and focus everything on the podcast. And then just over the next kind of couple of years, it just organically grew bigger and bigger. And um, from there, just uh, I kept going with it. So there was no grand master plan of how it would turn out. And as a a lot of things, it was just maybe timing and luck mixed in with uh, just um, hopefully some hard work thrown in there too. But that was the start of the podcast. Well, I'm confident that there is quite a bit of hard work because I understand completely the amount of time and energy that goes into to putting these types of uh, productions together. So like I said, I appreciate that. And it's really interesting to just kind of see the evolution of the Sigma Nutrition uh, radio show. And so you've been able to turn that into a coaching business as well, correct? Yeah. So I, I had originally started doing some coaching kind of as most people do quite locally and then started getting it more kind of at a national level. And that was alongside as the kind of Sigma education side of the business was growing as well. And then from there, I've been lucky enough that over the past number of years, as demand has grown, we, we now have four coaches that do our, all our coaching. So I focus totally on content creation and research at this point. And our coaching is done by um, our amazing coaching team at Sigma and uh, they uh, do a lot of great work and we're handling quite a variety of different types of people and i just get to kind of oversee that and have good conversations with them and and uh, they they're doing everything on the front lines but uh yeah so that that's been nice to have that running alongside the this was the other side which is our education arm of the business well especially because you're in the driver's seat as far as just the education process. And, and I know for me, one of the best things about the podcast is just having the opportunity to learn from people that know more than I do. Right. And so selfishly, it's like, how much fun is it to just pop on the call with someone like you and be able to basically pick their brain and then share all that incredible information with everyone. So it's, it's incredible. Yeah. That's the way I've often viewed it is just, by me trying to have interesting conversations and trying to learn from uh, these experts that just by people being able to listen in on that, they're getting benefit from it. So over the years, you've been interviewing experts in the field in research through both university, through coaching practices, um, you know, on all types of topics with respect to nutrition and energy um, demand and, you know, various components of nutrition at what point did you start to get interested in nutritional timing, in kind of um, time-restricted feeding, and then it, how did that sort of evolve into chrononutrition? Yeah, so I think actually an interest in circadian biology, and, and I'll get to what that means in a moment. Um, so essentially our, the impact of our internal body clocks that regulate um, certain biological processes, which are mainly influenced by our exposure to light and dark, um, are heavily influenced around sleep and so on. An interest in that area actually preceded any of the interest in chrononutrition specifically, uh, because at that time there wasn't really much chrononutrition research around. Um, but I was very interested in sleep, number one. Right. And one big component of sleep that I'm, heard, I'm sure people have heard others talk about is getting the the timing of their light and dark exposure correct so they may have heard people say you shouldn't have a tablet or a phone in front of you as you're lying in bed sure. this 
bright blue light in front of you, or you should try and have your room as dark as possible at night, and so on. So these are all ways to modify our light and dark exposure to allow for better sleep. And what that's actually doing is helping entrain or set something called a circadian rhythm. So this, these rhythms of different processes in the body that run at about 24 hours. And this whole area of circadian biology was a, a big research interest of mine. I liked reading about it. I liked trying to look at some of the, the research that was out there, add some conversations with a couple of friends who are big in that area as well. And then over the years, kind of since then, more and more attention in that circadian biology field has been paid to hey, not only does light and dark play a role here on setting some of those internal circadian clocks, potentially other things, including nutrient ingestion, can play a role on influencing those circadian clocks. And this is what we call this field of chrononutrition, just how food and nutrient ingestion can influence those circadian clocks and therefore impact their health. And so it really was an interest in, yeah, the circadian and sleep stuff first, um, and then also as generally interested in nutrition too. And then there was this overlap of those fields, thankfully, over the last couple of years, more so at least uh, with, with more good research coming out that has seen us get to the point now where there's a lot of high quality research in this area and a lot of focus on this going forward. Still plenty of questions I'm sure we'll point to, but still oh, yeah. a lot of great work being done. Um, so that was how I kind of first got um, interested in some of the the meal timing from a circadian perspective per se and and how did you start to wrap into that the various intermittent fasting and how I, I guess it would be important to kind of determine the difference between the types of intermittent fasting and then what the type of stuff that you're talking about with chrononutrition specifically maybe early time restricted feeding Sure. So the way I like to think of chrononutrition is there's a few different elements that relate to this. Um, and, and what it's really trying to do from the most basic perspective is, is there certain times of the day that we're better suited to eat versus not eat? And is there a better way to distribute our food across the day that's more productive for, or sure. fits in with our circadian rhythms um, in, in a more uh, conducive fashion? And so this would relate to Number one, the timing of when we eat a meal. And so that means we see, for example, differences in metabolism of the exact same meal if you eat that during the day, say in the morning or in right. the afternoon, versus if you were to eat that meal in the middle of the night, it's the exact same meal, exact same nutrients, you metabolize that differently. So for example, you could have a greater blood glucose response. So your blood sugar goes higher and stays higher for longer the exact same meal, just eating at different times of the day. So we, we see things like that, and that's based on these circadian rhythms, these variations in certain processes based on this circadian rhythm. So we see there's a difference in when you eat those foods. We then see there's potentially differences in the consistency of when you eat from day to day. So someone that has roughly the same meal times day to day versus, let's say, what we would call an erratic eater. Sure. When you have random different times that are wildly different day to day, maybe uh, a large difference in the number of meals you're having day to day, there's differences between those two conditions. Uh, then we'd have the impact of energy distribution or calorie distribution. This just means over the course of the day, 
if we presume two different hypothetical scenarios where the number of calories you're eating is the same, let's say even that all the meals are the same, but just where you place those calories in the day. So if you're putting the majority of them early in the day, maybe the majority of them late in the day, evenly distributed, is there differences in some metabolic health parameters based on when you do that? And, and we're tending to see this association at least with if you have a lot of your energy distributed towards the very end of the day, that seems to be suboptimal compared to pushing more of that at least a bit earlier in the day. And then the final component is around a restricted feeding window. And so this is that term time-restricted feeding, or when we're talking about humans, probably more accurately, time-restricted eating. And this is what a lot of people may start to be familiar with, the idea of you have a set window of time where you consume all your meals. So this could be an eight-hour window, 10-hour right. window, 12-hour window, whatever, but it's you have a certain start point and then a certain cutoff point, and your meal's consumed within that. Now, the time-restricted eating intervention comes directly from circadian research. So it's the idea of where it was first born out was for circadian reason, reasons. In other words, trying to align your food intake with daylight hours. So mm -hmm. when the light is outside, it should be when humans are awake, it should be when we're most active, and it should be when we're feeding. Conversely, when it's dark outside, we should be asleep, we should be resting, and we should be not ingesting food. And so time-restricted feeding was this idea that we're going to try and place those nutrients in that kind of daytime. Now, that looks on paper very similar to what most people see of a daily intermittent fast. So they might have seen a 16-8 intermittent fast pattern. So that's 16 hours of fasting, right. eight hours of, uh, of feeding. And so that looks on paper very similar to time-restricted feeding. The only difference really is that intermittent fasting interventions or protocols that people typically use are not really done with any circadian rhythm um, or circadian biology in mind. They're really just based on what is a convenient way for maybe me to restrict my calories or right. what's a convenient way for me to set up my food intake that fits my lifestyle. But time-restricted feeding is kind of done with the idea of this has a health benefit for circadian re reasons. Then beyond that, the term intermittent fasting can mean various different things. So there is a daily intermittent fast, like we said, but there could also be alternate day fasting where every right. second day you either fast or maybe only consume a small number of calories, typically about 500. Uh, there could be a 5-2 diet, which is two days a week, someone would have fasting days. So again, that's anywhere between zero and say five or 600 calories. And then the rest of the days are normal eating. Uh, it could be a prolonged fast, which is multiple days of fasting. Uh, it could be once a week, someone does a, a full day fast. So there's all these different variations that are different forms of fasting. But I think most popular nowadays when people say they are doing intermittent fasting would be a daily intermittent fast where they have a restricted yeah. feeding window, which is very similar to time-restricted eating. But as I say, it's just where they came from. That time-restricted eating is done for the reasons of we're trying to improve health by impacting circadian biology. So that's why with this condensed window, but for all intents and purposes, it looks the exact same as a a daily intermittent fast where you have a just restricted feeding window. Hey brother, are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best? 
as a businessman, father, and husband, I want you to know you're not alone. And sadly, the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong. If you wanna find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized by working smarter, not harder? Go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. The, the idea of intermittent fasting works well from a calorie restriction standpoint. Like it's very clear that that works well for people in whatever capacity that they choose to utilize it that, you know, works within their lifestyle. And obviously there's a lot mm-hmm. of different ways to do it. And that's cool. Um, from a research standpoint, how much do we really know about the positive impacts on actual metabolism in terms of how well uh, these types of different eating patterns and or time of day and or volume impact sort of right when we talk about metabolic factors, we're talking about like glycemic control and, mm. and hunger and appetite and um, insulin regulation. And I'm sure there's uh, mm. certainly other things that uh, we can take a look at like lipids as well, mm. um, for example. Sure. So with time-restricted feeding, first of all, like you say, consistently across many, many studies, what we typically see a very normal response is that you restrict someone's feeding window and you generally see weight loss occur in most groups. And that's generally just because they end up eating less calories without being instructed to generally with the restricting feeding window, at least for the duration of a study. Uh, you see people reduce their caloric intake and therefore there's going to be some degree of weight loss. Now there, there could be several reasons for this, uh, but it's just, we just know that typically happens that people see a reduction sure. in their uh, food intake from that. And that's quite consistent with a lot of the fasting protocols. Um, so we see that with time restricted feeding, there's also some of the time restricted uh, feeding research though that does suggest that even before weight loss has taken place, there has been benefits for some of the glycemic markers that you mentioned. Mm, so okay. fasting glucose, uh, which is fasting blood sugar, uh, fasting insulin, um, and so on, that there can be some benefits of glycemic control from having that restricted feeding window. Now, again, some of the mechanisms why we're still trying to tease out Um, One could just be if you cut out people eating very late at night, that tends to be problematic from a glycemic uh, perspective. So one of the things we see from some of the research on meal timing, like I previously said, is if you eat at biological night, then you have a greater blood glucose response to that meal compared to if it was eaten earlier. So now by having a fasting window of saying, okay, my final meal is at 7 p.m. Now you've immediately cut out the opportunity for someone to consume meals at 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., or so on. And so that may be playing some of the role there. Um, so there can be benefits from res- the restricted feeding window from, from that perspective. Meal timing, we definitely see uh, metabolic benefits from not eating late at night, like I just said. So that would mean skewing some of those meals earlier in the day. Uh, the energy distribution one seems to be really interesting. And I think this is where hopefully more of the future work will, will show us of that 
if you take the same number of, of calories in the same number of meals, but whether they are distributed towards the uh, start of the day versus the end of the day, there could potentially be benefits for some of those metabolic markers too. Um, now, there needs to be more replication of some of those studies, but certainly the ones that we can look at now seem to be able to show some benefit. Um, now, there have been, uh, there was a study last year that compared an early time-restricted feeding protocol to a late time-restricted feeding protocol. Yeah. So what this practically meant was the early was uh, start eating at 8 a.m. and then finish at 5 p.m. And then the late was start your first meal at 12 p.m. and then finish at 9 p.m. Now, within both those groups ended up seeing actual benefits and there was no differences really between the groups. Um, I think there was a slight difference in 24-hour blood glucose, uh, but it wasn't that meaningful. So it seemed to be pretty similar, um, which was kind of uh, surprising to me based on some of the mechanistic work. So we need more to work out exactly uh, how much the timing of your feeding window matters. Uh, but what does seem to suggest is it probably is a good idea to at least skew a bit more of your calories to a bit earlier in the day. And that doesn't mean you need to have like massive meals uh, for breakfast and then nothing later in the day. It just means right. it probably might not be a good idea for at least a lot of the people in the general population um, who are trying to just have control uh, blood glucose, who are trying to regulate their body weight, that it probably might not be a good idea to keep a large percentage of your calories for very late in the evening. That probably might be counterproductive. So by pushing some of those just to earlier in the day, there may be some benefit there. Um, so the most consistent finding, I would say for a lot of the timing um, and, and chrononutrition stuff is benefits on uh, the glycemic markers particularly. So glucose, yeah. insulin, uh, hemoglobin A1C, et cetera. Um, and you typically see with the restricted feeding window, reduction in, in food intake and therefore weight loss. And then there's this debated hypothesis of maybe depending on how you distribute that, those calories across the day, you could have differences in energy expenditure. Um, now there's been a couple of papers that suggested this could be the case. Others that show this might not be the case. Um, so that still isn't something we're, we're certain on. That's still a hypothesis. But that could mean that just changing your meal timing could impact your overall energy expenditure. Um, now, I, I wouldn't hang my hat on that because, like I said, that is still debated and we need some more research on that. Yeah. But, but they, they, they'd be some of the main findings we see from some of the, the chronos uh, work so far. It's super interesting and obviously, you know, very dynamic in terms of context. Um, but I think it's liberating for people to potentially understand that there's no right way of doing it of, as long as it comes down to some level of caloric control. And that means that mm. whereas one may think that they have to skip breakfast now with all of the, um, you know, updated and sort of media coverage around intermittent fasting and you know, for example, Dr. Oz saying if there's one thing that he's going to do in 2020, it's to skip breakfast, like in all this hype <laughs> around all this, yeah. this BS, you know, dogma around fasting now for people to understand, like still it's coming down to the, the basics of like intuitively, mm. right? How are you controlling your calories? And there could be some element there of just time restricted feeding and it could be a 12 hour window could be an eight hour window, whatever works best for you. But it, it certainly could mean a larger first meal of the day upon waking, if that works well for you and then curbing that. And, or if you're the type of person that doesn't like to do breakfast, 
then certainly consuming more of your calories later on in the day with the understanding that that could be problematic from, from, on multiple mm. levels, from certainly from a behavioral standpoint. And I'm sure you've probably observed this from a coaching standpoint or your coaches have that, right? When people start to uh, purposefully push their calories later in the day and or restrict to any degree that can be problematic in terms of the amount of consumption and type of foods consumed later on in the day. Mm. And then ultimately suggesting that, you know, for other people, it could mean that by eating calories earlier on in the day and intentionally curbing them at sunset then by virtue of just doing that, then they're not going to be eating a, a significant portion of their calories mm. uh, of what they would normally eat, right? Because we know right. that the, the typical, certainly the typical American's consumption um, is always uh, a greater proportion of their calories later on in the day, which we know now mm. uh, seems to have some negative metabolic consequences. Right. Yeah. So there's these two uh, different sides of it. Like you say that there's these, we can look at some of the physiological and metabolic impacts of different timing, uh, but we can also look at the very pragmatic and, and practical implications of using one of these strategies that even if we don't have all these mechanisms worked out, for example, we know as a general heuristic, having some sort of restrictive feeding window yeah. is a benefit for, for a lot of people. So, um, so especially just for members of the, the general population who are just trying to be generally healthy, that having some restricted feeding window is useful. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to go and skip breakfast and have your first meal at 12. Like you say, it could be a 12-hour feeding window, which is still relatively uh, large, and you can pick that at whatever time of day suits you, and it seems to still have a, a decent benefit. And so now you can, like you say, play around with what is going to suit me best. You can also then probably say it's probably not a good idea to have a meal just right at the end of the day, particularly if it's yeah. a large meal. So I'm going to have a cutoff point just before that. And also you probably see uh, quite commonly the sort of danger time for people to snack quite a lot tends to be at the end of the day, right? They're yeah. sitting in front of the TV. It's been a long, hard day. And one of the things from a practical sense that having a, a cutoff time that the restricted feeding window would give you would be, there's no decision then to be made, right? So if you say, okay, my, I'm going to finish eating at 7.30. After 7.30, there's no real decision making. You're not thinking about, will I have something yeah. or not? What will I eat? Maybe I'll have this or, or there's all these decisions that if you don't have a cutoff time, yeah. that you're going to end up just thinking about and probably accumulating a few snacks. Now, for some people, for others, for others not. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, flexibility within just having a restricted feeding window. And again, from a practical perspective, one of the things we see quite consistently from the trials that have used a time-restricted feeding model is that it leads to those reductions in caloric intake and those the improvements in glycemic control without giving any of the participants any other nutrition education or advice. Yeah. So they don't tell the participants what to eat. They don't tell them how much to eat. They don't give them any other information education around it. They simply say, stay eating what you're, whatever you want, but we just want you to eat within these hours. And it ends up leading to some of these changes. 
Um, now that could be again for from a behavioral standpoint, like we said, of cutting off the time where they usually snack. But it also could be for physiological reasons. I think if someone starts eating at consistent times day to day, they get used to having something in the early part of the day, particularly if they've got some like, good amount of protein in there, and they have like this consistent meal timing um, each day. That's probably going to impact some of uh, their drive to consume food and their hunger and their appetite, and that has a knock-on effect on their overall energy intake. So uh, I think there's a lot of direct and indirect factors playing into some of that stuff. Well, from the the time-restricted feeding standpoint, I think it works really well to have some kind of hard and fast rules in place, especially when you don't want to overwhelm a client and saying, look, Mm -hmm. you know, for them, it might just make a lot of sense to be like, look, cut it off at eight and don't start eating again until eight. And then it's almost a relief for someone to say, oh, I thought you were going to tell me that I couldn't eat this and that. And well, that's totally something that I can do. And obviously that's very context dependent. There's other people Mm -hmm. that have the type of personality that may say, screw you, you know, you tell me not to do that. I'm going to do it. And so uh, that's definitely behavioral uh, psychology at its best. But, you know, I'm interested since there's so many moving pieces here, how do those change when we talk about the type of person that we're applying this to? For example, I imagine that we're really just kind of applying this to the general population and when we say general population, we're talking more of a sedentary population, someone that's, mm. you know, potentially has a, a certain level of insulin resistance or have a certain level of adiposity or body fat that's beyond kind of what would be the norm versus, right, when we talk about probably a lot of your listeners and maybe some of my listeners as well is someone that's generally a much healthier from a physical activity standpoint, from a nutritional intake standpoint, calorie management standpoint. How do those factors change in your opinion? Yeah, so the, the, there's quite a number of ways. I think the biggest way is to zoom out and think about everything we do with our lifestyle and nutrition. Isn't that everything that could possibly have a benefit is what we have to include or do because we all pick and choose certain things that we're willing to do, some others that we're not. And we all have this kind of balance of which ones we're going to decide to include within our our life. We're never going to try and aim for perfect nutrition and perfect exercise and, and all these different things. So what we need to think about is an overall risk of certain negative health outcomes can be mitigated by various different healthy behaviors. And it's not that we need to do all of them all the time. It's what ones are going to have the biggest impact and what we can generally be consistent with. Now, the wiggle room for someone who is already lean, very healthy generally, who is sleeping properly, who has low stress, who is um, exercising uh, quite a bit, particularly that will relate to the time of meals that we'll come back to in a moment. Mm they have a bit more wiggle room here that they can probably get away with doing certain things that others can't, or they won't see the same downsides. Whereas I think uh, for someone who is trying to, let's say their doctor says, look, you're pre-diabetic at the moment. We need to do something to control your blood glucose before you, you develop type two diabetes. Let's try and do everything we can. And So in that case, you're obviously going to look at things like weight loss, exercise, and so on. But this could be something then that has a bit more of an upside for that person by saying, hey, if if I don't have that big meal late at night and just put some of it earlier in the day, and that helps a bit of my blood glucose control based on some of this stuff, then I can Mm -hmm. benefit greatly from that. Whereas that might not be the same thing for an athlete who, even if they get a big, massive blood glucose spike at the end of the day, it's not going to have 
yeah. an immediate negative consequence. So I think there is some context of who it has the biggest impact for or not. Um, and then just generally on athletes, there's some cases where some of this stuff would be uh, contraindicated where I gave examples before of if you take an athlete who their number one priority is performance or competitive athlete, probably let's say they're professional athlete even, then if they're training multiple times a day and are already trying to struggle to get enough carbohydrates and calories in to recover from that training, and now I come along and say, hey, I don't want you eating after 6 p.m., right? Or, or don't have a meal in the yes. evening time. Or I want to have this short we- window. That's contraindicated for what they're doing. And second, it's also probably unnecessary. Um, for yes. example, one of the things about blood glucose that I was mentioning about why we see a difference in the meal timing is that we have a circadian rhythm to our insulin sensitivity. So insulin is the hormone that's responsible for essentially signaling to cells, hey, there's some sugar or there's some glucose in the bloodstream that we need to put inside the cell. So it allows the movement of that glucose from the blood into a muscle or fat cell or whatever. So it allows us to bring our blood glucose back down to normal. So when we're more insulin sensitive, this happens better. That's why the opposite insulin resistance, which I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about, is problematic. Now, we have a circadian rhythm across 24 hours to our insulin sensitivity. So it starts highest in the morning and then dips down throughout the day and it gets lowest then in the evening and nighttime. So that's why if you have a high carbohydrate meal at the very end of the day, you may have a poor glycemic response that than if it was earlier. Now, if we take the case of an athlete, but they've just done a hard training session before that, then yes. it doesn't really matter that they have this poor insulin sensitivity. They're still going to be able to use that glucose afterwards. So there's all these different caveats that play a role into how much each of these things matters or, or doesn't. Um, and we should think of it in more kind of global terms of, of what is their overall risk profile, what's the overall benefit profile. Hey guys, real quickly, I want to talk to you about my nutrition company, BSL Nutrition, and our all-in-one training drink called Complete Essentials. This is a comprehensive exercise formula that I personally created after experiencing years of frustration, working with hundreds of individuals and athletes that were not getting the nutrition that they needed before, during, and after their workouts. After using numerous workout powders that were low quality, overpriced, chock full of caffeine and artificial sweeteners and were flat out useless, I said enough is enough and figured out how to create a nutritionally dense, comprehensive, and high quality product with ingredients that you can feel good about taking and giving to your family. When you use Complete Essentials, you'll no longer need pre, during, and post-workout supplements. You'll save time, money, and energy and get all of the beneficial nutrients you need in one delicious, easy-to-mix drink. It's just the ingredients that you need to give you great natural energy, improve your recovery, and reduce your muscle soreness with no caffeine or artificial sweeteners. You can learn more about our complete essentials at bslnutritionshop.com and check out the show notes below for a nice little discount on your first purchase as my way of saying thank you for listening. That's it. Let's head back to the show. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up kind of the use of of these types of methodologies with an athlete specifically. I, you know, there have been a lot of people that I've worked with that could certainly be classified as athletes over the years that their primary interest 
is certainly performance to a degree, but also health. Um, and, and let's say longevity, I'll use that term loosely, right? But, but within the media, we hear about the association between levels of fasting, right? Fasting and longevity, although I don't know whether the, the science actually backs that up or not. Point is that numerous people that you know, I've personally worked with that are, are grossly under-consuming calories by virtue of the fact that they're spending half of their day fasting as a means to promote health and longevity when in reality, the volume of exercise that they're inducing is far too much for their calorie intake. And so it's almost right. one step forward, two steps back. And it's yet another yeah. example of, of how these terms can get skewed in through social media and, and, and mm. through the internet and through the media and what have you to the degree that people are doing what they think is the right thing for them. This might be something valuable to talk about when in reality it's, it's again, it's, it's context dependent. Yeah, I completely agree. And particularly in the case of athletes, I think um, uh, one of the biggest challenges we run into is athletes who have picked up on some sort of diet strategy they've heard about on the internet that's typically yeah. applied in fat loss cases right. or someone trying to promote it as a healthy type of diet, but it's not really conducive to what their needs are. Like you say, that the calorie requirements they have, the the needs for them to be able to recover from the amount of training that they're doing and then to be able to go and perform. Sport nutrition is a completely different ball game to what diet is going to allow you to lose body fat or certainly different to what someone who has metabolic dysfunction right. and is type 2 diabetic, what they would need. And so trying to not distinguish between them is problematic. Um, we see quite commonly now large numbers of, of athletes are suffering from low energy availability. So we're seeing this now both in male and female athletes where even if their weight isn't decreasing, they are consuming too little calories to support their training and all the functions they need their body to have, which is why they start seeing shutdown of certain compartments in the body. So you can think of how many young female athletes will you see that are doing huge amounts of training. And even if their weight's stable, how many of them lose their period? So they now have amenorrhea, which is just a response of their body that, hey, we don't have enough energy around to sustain all this training, recover from that, and keep all these bodily uh, systems running. So we're just going to turn off this kind of reproductive system for the moment, and then they lose that, that period. And you see the same things across bone health. You see some impacts on thyroid. You see the low energy availability now in male athletes too. Um, and there are obviously some sports that are more risk than others, but it's quite common for a lot of these athletes to be under fueling. And I think some of it at least is in part due to taking messages from other areas that are not suitable uh, for athletes. Um, so that is, is quite common to see instead of getting to realize, well, what do I need to do? What is my priority? Um, and how should I fuel for the energy demands of what I'm trying to do. Which is why obviously you guys put all of your MMA athletes on keto, right? <laughs> it's, uh, and, and that was, that was one I talked about that. It's trying to get them back. Hey, you can still make way and still get leaner. Right. But we can get you eating way more calories and way more carbohydrates. Yeah. And it looks like magic, but it's just because they've been, used to doing the these rapid diets of very little calories and very little carbohydrates and, and not really understanding why 
that's having the effect that it is. And so this is yeah. why understanding the fundamentals around nutrition is important as opposed to I'm going to try this type of diet and I just know it works, but I don't know why. And I think it's really relevant to help people understand the amount of time it takes to get the body in a position to do what you ultimately want it to do in, in order you know, to have long-term progress and to say, yeah, I mean, there's a level of caloric restriction you know, necessary for weight loss, but it doesn't mean we're always going to be in a, in a restriction. You know, there be, might be mm. periods of maintenance, there might be periods of, of, of increased calories. And you know, it, again, it just comes back to, to someone embracing the process and sort of having objective markers to track along the way to show them that they're actually making progress, you know, as opposed to just blindly um, grabbing hold of the, the, of the latest fad or whatever the hell yeah. it is that Dr. Oz is talking about. But I think that that's actually right. leads me um, into my next question with you in terms of kind of I'm interested you having done what you've been doing for so long and, and being rooted in, in nutrition and, and evidence-based um, nutrition, as far as I, I'd like to know kind of what your thoughts are on the current state of the nutrition industry, like what you'd love to see more of and, and what you believe needs to stop. Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I, I think uh, de depending on what day I answer this yeah. question, I could be more optimistic or more pessimistic. And I think there's definitely two sides of that. I think probably we could look around places on the internet and, and some days think everything is going great. It's in a good direction. And in other ways, it it's, seems to be getting even more confusing and problematic mm. for people. So what I would say is that I do think there's probably never been a better time where there is as much good quality, sensible, evidence-based information around. Um, and it does seem to have grown considerably, even to the point now where even the term evidence-based has somehow become a buzzword that yeah. people are using. Um, but at least that's showing that there's an appetite for people who are consuming information to want evidence-based solutions. Now, at the same time, of course, there's been... Um, a, there's just... Nutrition is fraught with... Um, confusion and I just feel so sorry for people trying to seek out good information because they're yeah. it's hard to know how to know what to trust right because you can no longer really just go on credentials because we have people who are medical doctors who are just talking absolute right. nonsense uh, we have people who are even like dietitians who have their own ideology about stuff um, and then on the same time, we have doctors who are doing really good work and dietitians who are doing really good work. And we have people who are trainers doing really good work. And then we have everyone on the opposite side. Um, the same with Instagram influencers. We have uh, some of them doing really good uh, work to promote good messages. We probably have a whole lot more doing a lot of damage to people, I would say. So it's just a confusing minefield at the moment. And I think one of the biggest challenges within nutrition is that it's not just about presenting uh, evidence really it's that a lot of people have um, ideologies that they buy into they buy into certain tribes and mm -hmm. that with itself brings kind of problems it almost creates a kind of cult mentality where there's nothing really you can say um, that is going to change people's perspective on stuff, even if there is counter evidence to what they believe, uh, they've already kind of made up their mind. And that can be very problematic, um, especially if they are promoting 
incorrect information to a, a large number of people. Um, and so it's, it can be frustrating at times and I don't know what the answer is apart from yeah. just trying to keep put out sensible information and hopefully people um, that are looking for information at least start to look out for what red flags or could be of where's bad information. Uh, like, should I really trust this post that someone's put on social media where maybe they have some incentive to, to put it out? Maybe they're getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're just doing it to build a following. Maybe they're kind of preying on people's vulnerability. Not all the time, but I'm just, in general, these are things you can reflect on when looking at information. Uh, similarly, if you see um, someone that seems like they should be credible based on their qualifications looking at well what type of message are they putting does this sound sensationalist does this sound absolutist does this fit in with what the kind of general consensus within nutritional science is and if not what are why is that the case yeah it's just really tough for people and so i, I don't know uh, the solution but overall i would say the evidence-based sphere has grown but nutrition in general uh, in terms of like the internet information of nutrition is quite a mess. It's very valid. And I think that's a good response. And, you know, it's obviously the whole situation where at what point do we really need more information? I don't think we need more information regardless of the type of information and how science-based it is or otherwise. I think what it comes mm -hmm. down to is really making a platform for someone to align with in a realistic way for them to be able to create success for them. And the, the reality is, I don't know. I mean, I think people are going to choose to do what they want to do, choose to do what the people that they follow do. Um, that's sort of ingrained in our um, DNA. Have you have you read the book Sapiens? Yes, I have. Amazing it's, book. Right. So it's sort of along the lines of, we're, I mean, we're tribal species and we tend mm -hmm. to to conform to, to what the tribe's doing to some degree. It's, it's just part of, of who we are. And, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing when it comes to uh, nutritional ideology. I, I guess the way I look at it is, I think that people are going to choose um, methodologies that don't work for them. And that's part of the learning process. Yeah, no, no, I, I think they're all valid. And I don't think having a tribe and a community is, is a bad thing. I think the problem is, is, like you say, that it's not a fact of more knowledge being needed in nutrition. In fact, I would say the problem is certain communities in this nutrition space telling people that we don't know anything right yeah and they're undermining work that's already been done and then it's it essentially leads to this big waste of time where we have to have all these debates about what is good food or not and these answers have already been there sure there's like these little details we can work out yeah but in terms of a general dietary pattern there are things that we know that are pretty clear, right? In terms of overall having fruit and vegetables in the diet is a good thing, right? Yeah, having no, I, yeah. uh, whole foods mainly in the diet, having uh, nuts and seeds, that having whole grains, having legumes, like these are things that we've known for quite a period of time. And if you look at most of the, the guidelines that people tend to attack, 
they generally have most of the stuff right. Sure, there's things we, that they got wrong, like they, they had like a, a cap on cholesterol back in the day. That's mm-hmm. gone now. Um, but there's none of this other stuff of it's all these fake narratives of that these things were made to make us sick, which is not true. Like you look sure. at them and they were saying, hey, like, look, we're telling people to limit the amount of sugar in the diet. We're telling people that, hey, you want to probably keep your saturated fat under this level, have most of your food from vegetables and whole grains and so on. I think even now it, it's not that people are sticking to these and, and getting worse. It's, it's that they haven't been presented in a way that's useful to people. That's the biggest criticism I would have of these guidelines that they're accurate in terms of if people did this, it'd be great, but they're not usable by anyone. And this is where the work of people I think in the fitness industry comes in that it's up to like trainers and nutritionists to say, okay, we know this stuff doesn't work. You can't just tell people these things. Mm-hmm. We need to give them ideas of how to make behavioral change and generally eat healthy through a variety of different manners. Uh, so I just think a lot of time gets wasted by certain communities in nutrition telling everyone, oh, we don't know anything and everything you thought you knew about nutrition is wrong and you can throw all that out. It, it, just, it just wastes more time instead of saying, hey, we kind of generally know what a healthy diet is. Our biggest problem is just how do we get more people to do it? It's not what it is. Right. It's how do we get people to follow behaviors. And behavioral change. Every coach will know. Behavioral change is the thing that coaches know already. It's not about what if we change this nutrient or this nutrient. It, it's, it's, just, it's just a waste of time uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And with the availability of social media at our disposal and constant influx of coaches coming into the uh, nutrition sphere, uh, and wanting to have a voice or feeling like they need to have a voice and maybe not having a, at all any in-depth understanding of nutrition in any capacity and then just mm-hmm. aligning with, and I've, cert- I've certainly been there years past, but just wanting to align with some sort of ideology and then putting it out there. And mm-hmm. I get it. And I certainly understand how it can be incredibly frustrating for people that don't understand nutrition or are just trying to find something that's working for them um, Mm. in a way that works for them. So I I certainly appreciate that. Danny, what are you most excited for kind of moving forward? And and I guess, where do you see the research going with respect to everything that we talked about with, with Corona nutrition? I think in terms of this particular field, um, I'm intrigued to see more of the work that looks at the energy distribution um, so I would say, uh, that means if we keep the same number of calories from day to day, how much of an impact would it have in moving some of those earlier versus later? And there's some good work being done at, at the moment right now that I think, um, a couple of groups in the UK have actually done some of these studies already. They're in the middle of going through that data now. So hopefully over the next year or so, we'll start to see some papers emerge on this. So I think that will answer a lot. Um, and I suspect that could be as important, not uh, more important than the specific timing of that feeding window. So that's like having a feeding window of eight hours early in the day or mm-hmm. eight hours late in the day. It might not be where the window is placed. You could probably place the window at any time, but probably putting more of your calories to the earlier half, let's say, of the, the window as opposed to right at the end. Um, so I think those will be interesting to, to play out. Uh, I think some of the more practical questions as they continue to come in of 
um, in relation to some of this chrononutrition stuff, just by giving some people some very basic heuristics. Number one, how well can they stick to them? What type of impacts they have? I think those types of studies will be useful for seeing how this might work in the real world. Um, and I think then from a more nerdy side, seeing does any of the meal timing or the energy distribution or restricted feeding window, any of the chrono stuff have an impact on our daily energy expenditure. So again, if we eat the mm -hmm. same number of calories in two different conditions, but just where we eat those calories, does that change how much calories we burn per day? Um, like if some we suggestion might, but still others saying probably not. So I think once we get a kind of more clear answer to that, that'd be kind of really useful to know. I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, you know, an example would be if we're eating more calories earlier on in the day, we might, uh, by virtue of doing that, increase our uh, total energy expenditure throughout the day. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that's the kind of hypothesis that, yeah, if we, on two different conditions, we're eating 2,500 calories each, but one of them, we have more of those calories early in the day versus yeah. late. Would that lead to us expending more energy and burning up more calories over those 24 hours? And if so, that means that for we would have different impacts on our body composition, even though for the same number of calories. So that's a hypothesis that I think that'd be interesting to get more data on. I think a couple of the groups should have some good answers to that. Um, so there are a few of the areas of the Corona stuff that I think will be interesting to, to look at. Do you have any just kind of underlying preconceived notions or intuition regarding the, the early time restricted feeding and maybe any anecdotal evidence as far as, you know, your existing clientele in terms of, what you're seeing with respect to shifting, you know, meals earlier on in the day? Yeah, I have heard a number of anecdotal reports of people who have found some benefit to that. Um, I think over the last number of years, I've talked about how my own kind of timing has changed to be more in line with that. And it's not even that strict, but it's just having my kind of final meal is probably uh, somewhere between seven seven thirty typically maybe eight pm at latest um but with my main meal of the day being in the middle of the day as opposed to being that mm -hmm. final meal whereas many years ago i would have done the typical kind of uh thing a lot of people that would have done maybe some even some instead of intermittent fasting where keeping that biggest meal for the end of the day because i'd always told myself that's where i'm most hungry that's when i like yeah eating. right um and really what i found is it's it's mainly just an adaptation of getting used to it, that we just think that that's the case. And it's probably because if you fast in the morning time, then yeah, you're probably going to be hungry later in the day. And if you have a big meal, then the next morning you wake up, you're not that hungry. So you're telling hey, I'm not really hungry in the mornings. So I think uh, just getting used to that uh, showed me that it's probably you can adapt to, to a, a change of timing. So I've tried to do that and I found it quite useful to have, again, kind of a cutoff time around then um, and have kind of a, a bigger meal a bit earlier if I can. And again, that's just, I'm, I'm lucky to be in the situation. I can do that. A lot of people don't have that option, right? They, they have to get a meal they yeah. get home from work late and they've been working all day. So I totally get all the practical stuff to it. Um, but I also would point out to people, again, it, it's very flexible in terms of there's no specific times you must eat. So like I said, what well, might be a good idea to have something in the early part of the day that doesn't mean you have to eat breakfast as soon as you get up. So I would typically, if I get up at seven, I may not eat my first meal until 10 or mm -hmm. half 10. So I'm still eating a decent sized meal in the early part of the day. 
but it's still multiple hours after waking. And so there's loads of different variations of this. And I think you could probably extend that later, but it's just the idea. I think the simplest way that people could think of it is how can we get most of our intake to match up when it's bright outside? That's a yeah. simple way to think of it. Um, as opposed to keeping lots of our food intake to late in the day. So there's a few kind of um, anecdotal reports like that. But again, at the same time, I'm sure there's plenty of people with anecdotal reports of they like eating a, a large meal right before bed. So um, there's uh, there just take anecdotes with a pinch of salt, I guess. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I'm with you. I tend to do very well moving dinner earlier, kind of putting the cap around 7, 7.30 p.m., First meal for me is around 7 or 8 a.m., just depending. Um, but, you know, one thing for me, and then certainly I have some clients that have done the same on the other side of the coin is I have clients that tend to eat late. So, you know, you have to take it for what it's worth. But for me, it's created that hard rule of saying, look, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to cut it off at 7, which means I might have just a light dinner. Um, and it takes some getting used to. Uh, and you know, it takes a little bit of self-discipline to just not eat the leftovers from my kids' plates, which I would normally do, and, and thereby just basically end up eating a lot more calories. And I know that's the case for a lot of people. So hopefully this is helpful for those of you listening that may be questioning uh, the timing with which you eat your food, whether you should be eating breakfast, whether you should be moving your dinner earlier, or maybe you hadn't considered it and maybe you should be considering it as a means to reduce your total calorie intake, maybe help you improve your sleep, um, and maybe more effectively manage your blood sugar and insulin, and maybe help with some weight loss uh, along the way. So that's up for you to decide. Let me know if you have any questions. Danny, buddy, where can people find out more about you? Great. Uh, so probably the easiest place is just go to sigmanutrition.com, S-I-G-M-A, nutrition.com. And uh, all the our information is up there. The podcast, our articles, our new Sigma Statement series, which is basically a comprehensive written rundown of specific uh, topics in nutrition. Um, so we've covered probiotics, we've covered nutrition and sleep, we've covered lipids and cardiovascular disease. Uh, they're all up there. Um, and then if people want to find me on social media, they can get me on Instagram, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma, or on Twitter is just Nutrition Danny. Uh, so any of those places, I'm happy to take people's uh, questions. Awesome. And as always, all those links will be in the show notes below. Danny, thanks a lot, man, for taking the time to come on the show. I know it's late out there and I really, I'm really grateful uh, for your time you, and man. for everything that you're doing in the field of nutrition. Um, so please, please keep up the great work and let me know, you know, how I can help support you. Uh, that means a lot, man. Thank you so much for the great conversation and thanks for asking me to do this. It's uh, I've really had fun. Me too, man. Uh, take care and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Did you love this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.